Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Pixar Block. I've actually wanted to do this block for a few years now, so I unabashedly and unashamedly was pushing for this since the previous Floodgate cycle. And when I pushed it in as a nomination, since several people were nominating, hey, Laura's Choice, I was like, here, this is my choice. Some people weren't happy about that, and that's acceptable and understandable. I do get it. After all, this is, I think, 21 films. The rest of the year's movie ruminations are going to be Pixar films. I'm just going to be nice and overt about that. Obviously, assuming everything else is going fine, because I'm predicting stuff two years in advance, but assuming everything else is going fine, there will still be video game ruminations for those of you interested in those, but otherwise, if you're not into Pixar, I get it. Why did I nominate this, though? Well, two reasons. One, I like Pixar films. Although, this will be my first time watching several of these. No, not Toy Story. Obviously, I've seen Toy Story before. But several of these films I have never seen before, so that'll be interesting. But point number two... Going through the Disney Renaissance block taught me a lot about cinematography, filmmaking, and just film history. If you know me at all, you know I am a bit of a film geek and a cinema geek, and I really found it fascinating learning about the specifics and the politics and the technologies and the innovations and all the behind-the-scenes stuff that led to the Disney Renaissance films. Taking that one step further, when I was working on Up, and by now the news is out, Incredibles as well, which was actually a a slid into the rug thing. I kept that a secret for a while because that's what was requested. It was supposed to be Laura's choice. Anyways, I'm going to have to Covering The Incredibles and Up taught me that the same general thing applied to Pixar films. Well, they're decent enough films, and there's a decent enough stuff to discuss with regards to them for reasons that we'll be mostly discussing next time in a couple weeks here. There's a lot of film history here, and thus I felt that there was a lot to discuss. One of the things that my viewers have also referenced to me, in fact, this came up during, uh, I think it was the Assassin's Creed Unity, or, no, I think it was the Assassin's Creed Syndicate run, was the mention that you know several people <laughs> reacted positively to the Disney Renaissance block and how much, again, film history there was there. And I got a lot of positive feedback about that, far more than I was expecting. I was actually afraid to do the Disney Renaissance block when it was first requested, and it was requested by one of my biggest funders, which meant I wasn't going to say no to it. But there was still a lot of nervousness going into that. I hope those of you who are interested in Pixar, who are willing to be with me for the remainder of this block, will, will enjoy this particular series and discussion. <sighs> with all that out of the way, I do want to get across one thing. So you all know I keep this notepad here, and this is how I do these. So that page, and about half of this page, is before we even get to the movie. Let's talk history. Ah, oh, where, where to begin? I guess the best... I'm going to check my notes a lot here to make sure I keep all these names straight because there's a lot of names to go through here. I think the best place to start is the New York Institute of Technology. Now, they uh, were... Okay. When we think of CGI films, this is usually the film that people think of. And for understandable reasons. It was the first one. But... Well, something that happens semi-frequently is the Zelda 1 effect. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Legend of Zelda, the original, all the way back on the NES, or rather the Famicom, is something that is a landmark game, right? Huge sea change for the market and opened up tremendous possibilities for gaming going after it. But what was true about that, and what's true about a lot of games and movies and shows, is when you first try something new, it doesn't look all that great. It doesn't seem all that great. Now, it's because the technology isn't there yet. But the interesting thing, and the thing that, I mean, everyone knows that to some extent or another, but the thing that most people don't comment on is the fact that that's because the people who are doing it have been wanting to do it for years. And they've just been sitting there, waiting for the tech to get caught up with their imaginations. If you look at interviews for a lot of the old NES game designers or a lot of the old Atari game designers, a lot of the old filmmakers, it, you, you see the same story repeated over and over. We wanted to do X, but X wasn't available. And so we just kind of did other things, worked on other projects until it was available. And they usually try to jump the gun a little because they've already had the idea for years and they've already had to wait years. Thus, if you compare Toy Story 1 to any other Pixar film, the graphical difference is gargantuan. I actually bothered to, just for amusement's sake, compare it side-by-side side from Toy Story 1 to Toy Story 4. Oh my god, that was night and day. 
But even simply jumping forward to Toy Story 2 is a huge and noticeable increase in overall quality, which, again, makes perfect sense. The technology was barely there for Toy Story 1. There's actually another film that had a similar problem, Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace, and I swear this is on topic, is something that was pushed forward not just because Lucas wanted to go back to Star Wars, as I've discussed many times before, but because he wanted to push the technology forward. Lucas, being such a huge film geek, he's always been fascinated and interested in the technology of how films are made. The cameras, the digital side of things, the special effects, all that fun stuff. The construction, the function of making film. What does this have to do with this film? So the New York Institute of Technology formed a group under Alexander Shure. Uh, back in 1974? Oh, that's a nine. 1979. I was going to say, that's a little bit early. That isn't a four, is it? Maybe that is a four. Mid to late 70s. <laughs> now, that's my point. They were already thinking about making computer-generated movies in the 70s. Now... This is the last time I'm going to mention Alexander Shure. He doesn't really tie into this story all that much. Except in one crucial point, and, and that is... Uh, okay, two crucial points. One, he obviously is the reason why this ball got rolling. But two, for years afterwards, at least five years that I could track down, although records start to get shaky after that, he kept that group going. The computer graphics lab at the New York Institute of Technology kept dumping money into it, dumping support into it, and provided an actual an institution, for lack of a better way to put it, to study and learn how computers could be used to render things. This would uh, this would affect things like the making of Tron. This would go into ILM with regards to the future Star Wars films. There's a lot of stuff. This would this should show up in Star Trek, for God's sakes. A lot of those ideas, concepts, and technologies got their founding in this little education lab, the computer graphics lab, that he set up and kept funded. We all can tie it right back to him and his little pet project. And he just wanted to make, you know, he wanted to make this a thing. So while he does then dip out of the picture, I wanted to give special praise to him. Because the next two people we got to talk about are Alvy Ray Smith and Ed Catmull. You probably know those two. They were people who attended uh, the New York Institute of Technology and were part of the computer graphics lab. Now, they were trying to do some things, and they ended up getting invited. They were trying to shop around the idea of making films with this, actually getting out there and getting in contact with filmmaking groups, because making a film is a gargantuan financial juggernaut, as I've discussed many, many times. So they just, even even with all the incredible amount of funding and support they had, they didn't have that level of support. Now, by what is effectively massive coincidence, Francis Ford Coppola reached out to them and said, hey, you want to spend three days over here? We can just workshop, talk shop, and figure out what you want to do. Now, Francis Ford Coppola has always been a for-the-art film kind of guy, you know, film geek, right alongside his best friend, George Lucas. I told you I'd tie it back in. Lucas happened to be visiting during that period of time, and thus happened to be present during that period of time. He was like, huh, this is good. And being the film geek that he was, latched onto it immediately. He set up the graphics group. Uh, this is something that uh, would effectively and eventually be folded under a part of ILM, and then would later become to be its own separate division, which we'll talk about more in the future. He ended up poaching several people from the computer graphics lab over to the graphics group. Quick aside, somewhere around 1983, John Lasseter, yeah, I'm saying that right, sometime around 83, John Lasseter just kind of fades into the story as a temp who was hired to work on a brief thing, and then fades back from view. Just wanted to mention that because that's the first time he enters the radar here. So they worked with ILM and did quite a few things, and this led to uh, several bits. The big one that's probably relevant to most people who've watched my show is Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. I'm pretty sure I mentioned this back during The Wrath of Khan Rumination, but if I didn't, this was the team that developed the computer generation for the Genesis device showcasing, which was only a few minutes long, but still fully CGI, which was something that was quite unusual for the time, and was effectively them trying and testing out this technology, as I mentioned before, trying to push the tech forward. So, 
this uh, this is cool. Everything's cool. Then in 1983, <laughs> no relation to Lasseter, George Lucas got a divorce. Now, I hate to keep banging on this point, because obviously his wife did have valid reasons for leaving him, and that relationship was having rocky problems in general, and Lord knows George Lucas was on a downward spiral at this point in his life, as many other people, including myself, have discussed in the past. Thing is, as I've said several times, the George Lucas divorce was a surprising sea change event for quite a bit of the entertainment industry in general. Because the entire reason that the, the prequel trilogy and the other Star Wars movies didn't happen for like nine to a decade afterwards was because of this divorce. The reason Lucasfilm faded into the background and started doing mostly work for other studios, in many cases so quietly that some people weren't even aware of it until years later, was because of this divorce. And, for the purposes of this particular thing, this is why Pixar started to separate itself from Lucasfilm. Because given the circumstances and given the divorce and the massive financial impact this had on Lucasfilm, they were like, okay, he's going to sell off the group. So we need to devise ourselves and divest ourselves so we are a separate company that can at least do something and fund ourselves. Um, so they could, they started selling computer hardware in order to try and keep the lights on and keep, you know, keep funded and keep working. But they ran into the problem I mentioned earlier. They had the ideas. They had the talent. They did not have the technology. No one had the technology. It just wasn't there yet. Quick historical aside. You ever wonder how many people were in that position historically across all of human history? I'm, I'm dead serious. People who are basically just a little bit ahead of the curve from where they're at. And they're like, oh, if I, only I could do this with painting or with music or with writing or with, or with uh, you know, sailing or whatever. But the technology wasn't there yet, even though they had enough advancement to understand and gr grasp the concepts just past them. Because in my experience, that's how human history works. We are advanced enough and intelligent enough as a species to be able to think several steps past where we are. The very concept of science fiction in many ways. And thus, they could think of these things, conceive of these things, and even see how they might be possible, but it's, it's there. We're here. So they're like, shoot, what do we do? This is when Disney pokes their head into this story briefly, because Disney uh, wanted to use the cap system. If you remember my Disney Renaissance uh, ruminations, I actually commented on that as we were going through the Little Mermaid thing, because that was something that led into that. And then they leave again. This then leads to Steve Jobs, uh, by all accounts a disgusting and horrible human being who nevertheless had the most inexplicable faith in this project. I say inexplicable because I've never found any evidence or any interviews or any discussion on why exactly it is that he had such faith in this project. It could be he just saw the talent and potential. That, that, that was kind of a Jobs thing. I'll give him that. Otherwise, I'm not sure where this came from. But Jobs invested in them. And he was effectively the only investor for about three years, all the way up until a little, somewhere around 89-ish, again, nailing down exact dates is kind of difficult, until it reached the point where Steve Jobs 100% fully owned Pixar at that point. Now, another thing they started doing at this point in time was they started selling software to try and keep ends meet, because the hardware thing wasn't really doing it. And it's worth noting Pixar was hemorrhaging money. They were operating at a loss consistently. Historical footnote, it is possible that Steve Jobs was keeping on the company at a loss because of the various tax benefits that exist for having a company under your umbrella that operates at a loss. It is also worth noting Steve Jobs was extremely hands-off. In fact, he wouldn't get involved in the production of this until Toy Story was already something that was being shopped around. and That's years from this point. Anyways, so... <clears throat> They put out software to try and you know bring in some money, and they put out two software programs called Renderman and Typistry. How many of you heard of those? How many of you worked with those? I was privileged enough way back in school to actually work on both softwares, and you're probably thinking, "Oh, Lord, you're no, I had no idea what I was doing. The interface was terrible, and I was just completely lost. But it was an interesting little anecdote going forwards. Anyways. So, this then leads us to 1988, still a few years before the film actually comes out. Lassiter. Remember him? Well, 
He's over at Pixar, and they're still workshopping, and they've got their own in-house systems, and they've got their in-host software, and he puts together a little short story that you've probably heard of called Tin Toy. Now, Tin Toy gets out there, and several people see Tin Toy, and they're like, ah. One of the things that tends to happen consistently in video games, movies, and shows is that someone will see something and they'll recognize the potential. Basically, they will also recognize the head of the curve thing and latch onto it. <laughs> the good executives, the good money people, are the ones who can identify this sort of things. If you've been paying attention to my rumination series over these last few years, I've pointed out several instances where this has happened. The Disney Renaissance was one of them. The MCU was another. And there's been several others I've covered as well. But both Eisner and Katzenberg remember him, saw this and were like, that, that's the next big thing. We need that. And we need that now. And so they tried and worked really hard to get uh, Lasseter and his team under the Disney umbrella. Lasseter said no. Despite a lot of effort and what is effectively outright bribes attempting to get him under the Disney label. Lasseter has later quoted as saying that he said, well, I could make a lot of money, or I could make history, and he decided to make history. Whether that's valid or not is up to you. That was a statement after the fact. But nevertheless, he stayed behind. Another historical foot point. Again, if, if, you, if you only watch one of my Disney Renaissance films, watch The Little Mermaid one, because I discuss extensively the lead-up to and the, and the development of the Disney Renaissance, kind of like I'm doing right now for Pixar. You notice we haven't even gotten to Toy Story yet. Katzenberg was working on Little Mermaid when this was happening. And that I mentioned that because, if you remember, he was trying several new innovative concepts, including throwing money at a project and supporting it properly from the studio so it actually can put out a good product. I say that semi-jokingly, but it was unusual at the time, for most studios, but especially for Disney. Thus, the intention by all accounts was that he was going to fling support behind this CGI thing, making CGI films. Keep that in mind for later, too. So anyways, that didn't work out. So this then leads to office politics, everyone's favorite subject. Disney had a big, long-standing rule about working in-house. Now, Disney in many ways operates like a law firm. This is still true, by the way. They have precedence, and they follow tradition to a letter, unless something significant happens to change that, which then becomes the new law. Okay? They were not going to work out of house. They were not going to work with this other studio. And then a little-known dude named Tim Burton showed up, made Nightmare Before Christmas, did very well. And as I discussed during the rumination of that, he tried to make sure that no sequel was happening, and in fact, ended up pulling the rights out of Disney. What happened as a result of that negotiation was that he was now allowed, though he never has as of this writing, he was now allowed to do a sequel to Nightmare Before Christmas. If we're being honest, Corpse Bride is effectively the sequel to Nightmare Before Christmas, but let's not get into that. <laughs> Point being, he had the rights. He secured those rights, and Disney was like, okay, we'll allow this. We'll allow you those rights, we'll allow you this, but we will also be able to and willing to work with you if you want to do this sequel precedence set. Katzenberg lunged onto this and immediately was like, okay, now that we have this thing and this shift in office politics, no problem. We need to get Pixar in and we need to get Pixar developing and we need to support them financially just like we were preparing to do with Tim Burton's thing. Now, the reason I mentioned the politics thing, and this nearly torpedoed the whole thing, if you've paid attention, well, I have praise for Katzenberg, and I do, I also have a lot of heaping scorn for him as well, because of little crap like this. He, he has a problem with claiming way too much credit for things. Talked about that during the Disney Renaissance. And he also doesn't know how to make... Let me, let me rewind that. He has very little talent on the creative side of things. He's actually pretty good at making things happen. Again, the properly fund, properly support thing was his idea. And he would continue to do that for some time, even when he went, went off to make DreamWorks. But he tends to take too much credit, and he tends to have no idea about the actual creative side of things. The too much credit thing shows up here. He wanted to go outside of his boss, Paul Schneider. Now, excuse me, Peter Schneider. Wrong name. It's a P. Peter Schneider. Now, Peter Schneider was the president at the time of the Features Animation Department, and he didn't like that idea. 
Katzenberg wanted Pixar attached to him, not to Schneider. The two did a little office politicking back and forth, which I won't bore you with, but this caused some issues, and will cause some issues in the future. He also played hardball with the Pixar team, who were very hesitant given the reputation Katzenberg had. Katzenberg, credit to him, owned his reputation and said, yeah, but, hear me out, talk to my creative staff. They'll tell you that I let them do their freaking jobs. They did. They did. So they decided, okay, we can actually work with you. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of work together. Then Katzenberg spent what I believe is a total of about two and a half years. Again, it's hard to narrow down exact dates for this kind of stuff that isn't necessarily a part of public record. Playing dueling contracts with Steve Jobs. This, by the way, would continue to bleed over all the way into Toy Story 2. Uh, mostly, it boiled down to rights issues. Now, check this out. This is funny. The net result was that Disney owns the characters within Toy Story, owns the film, maintains complete creative control, has an option, not a requirement, for two additional feature films, could kill the film with very little penalty. In other words, they have an easy exit clause in the contract. And in return for all that, Pixar gets to make the film and gets 12.5% of the box office. Now you might be like, that's a terrible deal. And you'd be right. This then leads to scripting issues. Now, this is all a jumble because all this was happening at the same time. So my order of events here is actually incorrect, and I know that. Please forgive me. But in the original story, Woody was a ventriloquist dummy. Everyone knows about this. And he was the villain. Nobody liked it. So they're like, all right, let's restructure this. Let's put this together. They restructured on two major points. Point one they need to focus on the toys and their motivations. What is the motive of a toy? And the answer everyone came up with was to be played with, to, to, to bring joy and happiness to the lives of others. Cool. Point two, buddy cop thing. Now, that actually hasn't happened yet, but that's those are the two points that they ended up focusing on. However, they had massive, massive script issues, okay? Now, that makes sense. All the people at Pixar at this point in time were animators, there were people who were pushing tech. It would be like asking George Lucas to write a Star Wars film. Now, that sounds like a joke, but I mean that with total sincerity. I have and always will defend George Lucas as a film geek and as a pusher and innovator of technology. That's what he's really good at. He's also a good second unit director, but let's ignore that for the moment. Um, he is someone who is very good in his field. One of the best. At least he was back in his day. These guys and gals... They were the best at CGI animation. And they were. They were ahead of the curve in almost every other way. And in fact, had already actually done some work with Disney in some of the previous works, as I discussed in the Renaissance films. So, how do we get the script working? Well, first thing they did, Disney pushed in Joel Cohen and Alex Sokolow. If you don't know those names, don't worry. They haven't done anything really significant other than this film. I'm not sure how much of the script they contributed to. This is a good time to mention the Black Friday incident. I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but I know it happened before the next major event. Okay. What happened was over the course of several months, about three months total, Katzenberg would receive script things, and he would send revisions. Do this, change this, make this. Disney had creative control. Katzenberg was running the department. Everyone listened to him. This was a terrible idea. All of these ideas kept being pushed forward, and the script was just terrible, and nobody liked it. At one point, Katzenberg is quoted as actually sitting down and saying, what the heck is wrong with this script? I don't understand it. Like, why, why did you all listen to me? As if he was surprised that all of his, his creative changes were actually followed to the letter. It is also worth noting that someone else is quoted as mentioning that they, that Katzenberg went to them and said, what the heck's wrong with this movie? And their response was, well, they're making your movie, not their movie. That might have been a wake-up call for him. I'll give him the possibility of credit on that point. Either way, this was bad, and the script was bad, and nobody liked it, and then Schneider, remember him? He was like, ah, oh, perfect. And shut down the whole project, and was in the process of trying to get all the animators fired, and the whole thing closed down. Now, this then led to an interesting circumstance, series of circumstances. Katzenberg actually had to go to bat for them, credit where credit is due, and make sure that everything wasn't fired and the project wasn't completely torpedoed. Steve Jobs, I, I 
this is still blowing my mind that he did all this. Steve Jobs actually started dumping money out of pocket to pay people to keep working on the film. To keep, because there's still a lot of work that can be done regardless of the script. They still need to texture and, and, uh, sculpt and do all of the many, many things that go into actually designing the lighting, designing the camera movement, designing the keyframing and the, the, the grapple points or whatever they're freaking called. You know, getting the skeletons and the meshes all done that. There's a huge amount of work to be done. So he started paying out of pocket to keep that work going. Sometime around this point in time, Joss Whedon got involved. Alright, be honest. How many of you knew Joss Whedon was probably the most singularly responsible person for making this a good script? Now, it's worth noting, Toy Story does not have a, a great script. Actually, I, I suppose I should walk that back. It has a acceptable script. It has some good moments, but it is probably the weakest of the Toy Story films and of the Pixar series in general, at least until we get to the Cars stuff. But the only reason this is a script that is acceptable at all is because of Joss Whedon and one other person. Don't worry, I'm going to mention him too. He got in and was like, this is, this is a nightmare. So he contributed several things. The first thing was he added Rex, because there needed to be some kind of bumbling, exuberant character in there. The second thing was he added Barbie. If you're paying attention, Barbie is not in this film. Mattel actually flat out refused to be a part of this, and indeed this is one of the reasons why G.I. Joe is not present in the film in addition to Barbie. Some, some of the toy companies were like, no, why would we want to sponsor you uh, to make a film about toys to sell toys? That's insanity. Again, it's worth noting that most people did not think Toy Story was going to be a success. In fact, even Steve Jobs, who I remind you has been paying out of pocket for years at this point to keep this whole thing going, flat out said, we'll probably break even and Disney will probably make a decent amount of money. Direct quote. Uh, indirect quote, excuse me, indirect quote. But Barbie was turned into Bo Peep and the character of Bo Peep and that development came out of him. But the most important contribution he made was he completely rewrote Buzz from the ground up. Originally, Buzz was a kind of dopey, you know, that, that sort of stupid, heroic protagonist archetype that is unfortunately common in fiction. And very self-aware, just kind of constantly slapping and, oh, it looks like I did it again, kind of thing. Now, please picture Buzz Lightyear and picture that. Doesn't work, does it? And it didn't work. Everyone agreed. Joss Whedon said, okay. He's a toy, but he doesn't know it. And had the whole story restructured around that new axis. And as a consequence of that, the entire story of the film developed around Buzz and his his character arc. His realization of who and what he is and his identity and the struggles with that. Now, that's not exactly grand, amazing stuff, but you'll notice how it's something. Which is what it, the important part is, because they had nothing before this. Now, I mentioned someone else, and I do want to mention them here. I wrote down the name. Robert McKee, who was a script uh, teacher and did seminars. Uh, the whole group went and took this seminar and sat down. It was a three-day seminar and learned a great deal about storytelling and scripting from that lesson and took it all to heart. And there's one other very important tidbit, which doesn't actually matter for Toy Story, but it'll matter for the future. What they ended up doing is they kept taking in ideas and rewriting as they went. Again, with an animated film, while they do have to block and story, there's still a lot of work that can be done before they actually have a script, so that was feasible to be rewriting the script as they were going, unlike in other films where that would cause hellacious issues. <clears throat> Transformers, excuse me. But what they kept doing was they kept having a round table, and they would brainstorm ideas, and as group they would come up with what they would do and how events should follow. Like I said, remember that. It's going to come up later. After this rumination. It's going to come up in a future movie. So, the Black Friday was over. The script was in place. The backing was there. What do we got to do? Well, now let's actually make this sucker. Hang on. Hang on. Disney wants to make a change. They want this to be a musical. Everyone pushed back against that. No! No! We can't... No! But that's our thing. Now, it, it, so I mentioned how Disney's a law firm, right? Or operates like a law firm. Excuse me. Don't want to say something that's going to get me sued. But Disney tends to operate like a law firm. Little Mermaid was successful. Little Mermaid was a musical. You see the problem? This is also why so many films in the Disney Renaissance were musicals. It's not because it fit the films. It's because Little Mermaid was a musical. Now, that can work, and it obviously did work, but you see the problem. Everyone was like, no, that, that doesn't fit this, that doesn't suit this, this is a buddy story. 
It doesn't work that way. You can't just have people singing their emotions out there. And it took a lot of pushback from, again, basically everyone before the executives relented and were like, fine, you don't have to make it a musical. Cool. Okay. Now, (laughs) they started animating it. Eight separate teams. Each scene would go through the teams in sequence. Uh, It took about a week per eight seconds of animation. And when it went out, the film came out. This film went up against Batman Forever. Okay, I know it's not that great of a film, but it was a financial... It was predicted to be a financial juggernaut. Apollo 13, which was a bit of a financial juggernaut. And Goldeneye, the first James Bond film in years. And all of these three films were stomped by Toy Story. They walked in with a $30 million budget and walked out with a $370 million box off. This was a smash success to an extent that nobody predicted. Now, if you paid attention to my discussions back on Incredibles and Up, I mentioned how the financial path of the the returns on Pixar kind of goes around until uh, I think it's Finding Nimoy was the one that really was the massive explosion one that rivaled this one. But this was the first big one. Nobody expected this to be this level of a success, becoming the the, the best-grossed film of that year and the third-highest-grossing animation film of its time, only surpassed by Aladdin and Lion King. This film did so well that Pixar was able to go public just based on it. And their initial offering was huge and went up rather substantially in a day. So with all of this done... Oh, right. I do need to refer to one other thing on the first page. There's one other thing. I want to talk about this here because we're kind of talking the behind the scenes first and then we'll discuss the movie proper. I swear we'll talk about the movie at some point. This was four big things for history. Now, the smallest thing was it got rid of the... the fantastical kid thing. Some of you probably remember that. It was very prevalent in the 80s and the early 90s, and it still kind of started drifting out during the 90s, especially thanks to some Nickelodeon stuff. The thing where the kids would have superpowers or be karate ninjas or be the only competent people in the group of the adults and that kind of a thing. Now... That hasn't exactly gone away, but it was really big up until this film, which effectively proved that it wasn't, you know, really a feasible format and started to go down after this point. The second big thing was it kind of killed off traditional animation. (laughs) It wasn't deliberate and it wasn't direct, but this is the beginning of the end. This is the first nail in the coffin of traditional animation. And you'll notice Disney themselves would lurch on for several more years after this, continuing to use that, until finally they themselves relented and started putting out CGI films in the same manner that Pixar. And most other studios had the exact same path and followed suit. I mean, there's a reason Shrek was a little ahead of the curve on that one, too. I'll give you that one, Katzenberg. The third thing was obviously Pixar themselves, who have had a massive influence on cinematography in general and have been filmmakers for many, many years. But the first one, and I kind of hinted at this, their biggest influence is they were proof of concept. While Toy Story is a little bit of a Zelda one, just like Zelda one, it proved that this thing can work. That it not only is something that can make a good movie and a good game, but it could sell well. And forgive me for being cynical, but quality does not necessarily guarantee repeated success. But financial success guarantees repeated attempts, which gives us a better chance, more rolls of the dice, if you will, of getting that quality, which is exactly what ends up happening. Let's get to the film proper. God, this game, this, this, this came, well, listen to me, this film has not actually aged all that well. Oh, there's some scenes that have, and some of the animation is still legit to this day. But, oh, the people. Oh, God. There's actually a reason why the people have a lot of limitations. They wouldn't even invent the hair thing until Monsters, Inc. So most of them don't really have hair in the strictest sense. They just have a plastic shell that's kind of adhesed there. And, you know, in several cases, they have hairstyles that are very short or cropped. So they don't have to show too much of that. And the humans have very little screen time, too. Uh, to name one example, later on at the gas station, they have a grand total of three human beings involved in a scene during which we hear two of them, and we only see a grand total of a little bit of one of their arms in the whole scene. So they did realize the problem and walk, tried to walk away from it, but woo! So, 
Real talk. How many of you used to play with toys like this? Uh, so, um, uh, this is going to sound weird. I don't mean this is like a poor me thing, but I didn't really have many toys as a kid. I had video games. Now, this was a, a bargain. This is something that was made as an economic deal with my mother and my grandmother, specifically. Because I was more interested in video games than toys, so that's what I got. I still had a few toys, though, and... Rocks. And, like, sticks that I would carve into the shape of ships and stuff like that with, like, a little carving knife, you know, whittling knife. And so that's what I would play with. Also baseball cards. Had a few of those. And so that's what I would play around with like this. It was fun. They have a SNES. Oh, my God. They also have a themed bed. Now, something I don't think I've ever noticed before. This family has wealth. The signs of it are everywhere. He's got tons of toys in a large room, which he only has to share with one little sister. Uh, you know, the baby. And he's got... All this stuff. Uh, he's got a themed bed. He's got posters. He's got stylized wallpaper. They've got a nice big two-story house in some kind of suburban area. They go to Pizza Planet later. I'll cover that when we get there. Lots of signs of the fact that they're doing quite well financially. Makes sense. Most kids, if they're going to have a lot of toys, need to be doing well financially. At least their parent does. Oh, yeah, by the way, why is she a single mother? Well, you might think it's because Andy is actually a JRPG protagonist, but no, it is in fact because of the fact that they wanted to have as few humans involved as possible. So, toys, rules, world building. Let's get this out of the way first. The world building of this series does not make sense. Bam. Let's just get that out of the way right up front, throw it out the door, and never look at it again. Why? Two reasons. Number one... Effort is made to world build, even if the world building doesn't cohese with itself. So credit where credit is due. But two, and arguably more importantly, concept pieces. Let me explain what I mean by that. This usually comes up more in video games than it does in films, but let's say you want to make a game about just a concept. You have an idea, and it's just this unique idea. And there's not that much you can do with it. Like, the idea is kind of flat. So you can make a short, like, five-hour game, and then there it is, and it's a concept game, right? And it, it, it tries something. It pushes the envelope. It, it, it gives you something new to chew on. That's cool. But it's only ever going to be that short little thing because concept works tend to be limited by their very nature since a concept is something that's kind of more of an abstract, something that doesn't work the more thought and effort and time you put into it. You see the relation here? Pixar likes to put out concept films. The overwhelming majority of Pixar films are concept films. They all begin with the phrase, what if? What if toys were sentient and sapient? What if cars were the dominant force on the planet? What if dinosaurs were really stupid? And so forth and so on. And so each of these concepts works well and arguably works a little bit better as like a short story format. But if you think a little bit too hard about the world building, almost all of them fall apart. That being said, it is still my job to comment on it, so I will comment on world building. Let's save that for later, though, because it's going to come up later. Everything's going to come up later today. So, toys left behind in the move. Oof. Yeah, that's got to be a terrifying thought. I never had that happen to me personally, but I know a lot of friends who it did. There was also one very disastrous move, which I've referenced several times on this show, uh, when I moved cross-country with my mom. This would have been right before high school. It's the move right before I almost committed suicide, for those of you familiar with that particular story, the FF6 story. Anyways, um, we lost a lot in that move. <laughs> we lost a lot of stuff. I lost a lot of magazines. I lost my freaking sword in that move. <sighs> for some reason, that's the one that stuck with me so much. Lost a lot of stuff. She lost a lot of stuff. It was very unpleasant, very horrible. Things were not going great. Mom was deathly ill. Everything was awful. Um, so I, I totally get the idea of losing toys in a move and how much that's probably a regular problem. There's also the idea, and this is, this is another one of those concept things. Most people think of birthdays and Christmas as, yeah, awesome, presents, family, fun, food. For toys, it's like, oh, God. Oh, God, it's birthdays and Christmas. What do we do? What other toys are we going to get? Are we going to be replaced? Are they going to get a new one of us? Oh, jeez. And you could see the stress and panic and worry in every single one of these moments. And you could see why it would be such a big deal, especially since it only happens twice a year. It's like a reverse festival. 
it's more like uh you know the 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 sliver is coming down from the moon kind of situation you know silver slivers hmm someone knows what i'm referencing i'm sure so hopefully they'll have a mrs potato head foreshadowing now drama from context one of the things I've talked about a lot lately is how you don't have to have big world-ending scope in order to have drama, to have something that you are invested in and you care about. All that you need is proper context and presentation, right? And in a pinch, you can lean on one more than the other. In this case, opening presence turns out to be a big dramatic moment. It's like, oh gosh, what could it be? Could be and there's there's legitimate tension here. It's not big, especially since I just watched Aliens yesterday. But it's still there. It's still present, and it just makes you go, "Oh gosh!" And it pulls you into that moment, which is part of what I love so much about this. They also take quite a while to deliberately avoid the reveal of Buzz Lightyear. They they build it up properly until it's like <gasps> big, expensive-looking toy. And notice how, once again, the visual style of what would become the Pixar hallmark is immediately present. I should also take a moment to praise Gary Rydstrom, which I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He's one of the main sound leads of Pixar at this point in time, and will be for some time now. You may recognize him from being one of the main sound leads over in ILM and working on the Star Wars stuff for several years. And if you know anything about Star Wars, you know that their sound design was top freaking notch. So... <laughs> Another thing in their favor, and yet another reason why Star Wars is connected to Pixar. Go figure. Anywho, <clears throat> but they do a good job of immediately getting across the point. All of these toys are relatively low-tier $2 kind of toys, for the most part. Woody is probably the most complex one here, overall. And you'll notice he's the one in charge. We also see his natural organization skills right off the bat, so we establish his role as the local leader and de facto father, which is a theme that will come up more in future films, but is still present here. So, having showcased all that and said all that, Buzz comes in, same general size and style, much more complex, much shinier, much newer. You'll notice the first thing Woody says to Buzz is not to welcome him, really, or be like, hey, welcome to the... No, it's, you're in my spot. There's been a problem here. Now, this is later addressed directly, but for the, the decent chunk of the film, over half of the film, Woody is consistently... Oh, what's a good word? Worried? Nervous? I think I'm going to go with afraid. Afraid of being replaced, afraid of losing his position. And what we see in what immediately follows is a montage as Buzz proves himself superior to Woody in every way, as montages like to do. Buzz also then flies. Remember that for later. Funny little tidbit. There's several bits where Woody is effectively abandoned in favor of Buzz. Now, my toys don't actually get up and talk, but would you believe I have similar-ish feelings of guilt about leaving things unattended to or untaken care of like that or just buried in the closet or whatever? No joke, I really do have that problem. It's mostly with stuffed animals because, you know, they're awesome. The reason Blue is right here. I'll, I'll even prove it. Blue is right here. Say hi, Blue. But the point being <clears throat> that I could kind of get that and seeing this movie just makes it worse. Like, oh, it's okay, I'll never abandon you. Oh, please, tell me I'm, I'm not the only one who has that type of feeling. Anyways, this then leads to the introduction of Sid and Combat Carl, a.k.a. G.I. Joe. Now, his introduction shows that he's, uh, well, the bad guy. Let's talk about Sid later, though. What we need to talk about now is how Woody is like, ha-ha, I shall knock Buzz down below the space in between the bed, and then he will no longer be picked, and I will once again be top dog. I mean, top toy for this particular... Oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. Oh, shoot. And he's knocked out the window. And now, Tom Hanks sells this a little bit, and the, the animation actually sells this too. It's very clear this was not what Woody wanted. There's no legitimate malice there. And even in his greatest anger and spite, he still did not wish this fate upon Buzz, even though Buzz was at this point fully just an enemy of his. I point that out because it's important because Woody is supposed to be the frickin' hero. It has been argued that this exact moment was actually something of a holdover of the original Woody, the one who was the villain. 
Either way, this then leads to something that is probably the worst part of the film. Uh, first, the group of toys don't believe him almost immediately. Now, okay, jealousy is certainly one of those motives for murder, sure. But they turn on him really quickly. Wow. This also leads to problem number two, Mr. Potato Head, who I just want to slug as hard as I possibly can. He is an inciter. He is the kind of person who uh, you never want in a crowd, because he's the kind of person who will push that crowd from being a crowd into a mob. He does this three separate times in this film. Screw him. Anywho, so he's the one who really pushes that angle quite a bit. So... Woody, you know, goes out and and uh, Buzz goes after him and they end up in the car and it's like, oh God, what am I going to do? You're safe, we're back. They end up fighting. This is probably the best time to mention the recording policies of this film. I know this is a weird thing to bring up, but hear me out. When you're doing animation, how you record lines is up to you as a director, as a voice director, and as a uh, editor. For example, in the FF9 theater, the overwhelming majority of my actors and actresses all recorded their lines segregate from each other, and they just send them in to me and I slot them in. There are some exceptions to that. In some cases, the actor or actresses wanted something more, so I would send out a snippet of the scene with the other characters' lines there so they could have something to act off of. And I'll admit, I had something to act off of too, because I'm sitting right here listening to the scene, and I did my lines late on purpose so I would have that benefit. Why? Because there is a benefit to acting off of someone. The only two people that consistently had the booth to themselves in a situation where they could actually act off of each other was Tim Allen and Tom Hanks, who were there talking, laughing, working out some of their character motivations and how they wanted certain beats to go. And they're both talented actors and they had great chemistry together, so it worked out beautifully. This is, of course, a buddy film, so it makes sense that they would put extra work into making the buddies work. And the actors themselves knew that, and they put the extra effort in, too. I just wanted to comment on this, because the first scene where this is really, really obvious, in my opinion, is the gas station scene, which also includes probably the most iconic scene in the film. You are a toy. The the voice acting sells it, but you could see Woody is just... You're not getting this. You're not getting this. And Buzz is just like, yeah, no, I'm not getting this. Peace. And, you know, Vulcan hand signs his way out of there. Live long and prosper. I have to mention the fact that that there's a tiny little bit where Buzz insists on sitting up front because they have seatbelts. That's cute. Anyways. You remember that massive behind-the-scenes thing I talked about earlier? Well, I didn't talk about a side thing because I wanted to talk about it here. In 77? I forgot all the dates and this... There's this whole side thing, but the long and the short of it is one of the people who helped found Atari also helped found something called Chuck E. Cheese. You've probably heard of them. And used that to spin off another group called Senate, or Senate, I don't actually know how to pronounce it. It's not Senate, it's it's pronounced differently. Um, which started pushing out CGI animation as a thing that they could do underneath the Chuck E. Cheese label. That company went under, along with, obviously, Atari going under. Thanks, Atari, for the video game bust of 83. And as a consequence, several of those assets and resources were sold off and then reorganized under the graphics group, a.k.a. the group of Lucasfilm, which would eventually become Pixar. Why is that relevant here? Well, ignoring the obvious just amusement of that fact, there's also the fact that I've always wondered if Pizza Planet was inspired in part by Chuck E. Cheese. Now, Chuck E. Cheese is all right. They've actually apparently had a bit of a resurgence in the last decade or so, which I wasn't even aware of until recently. But... This place, this place goes above and beyond, doesn't it? In fact, as I'm looking at this place, I can only have two thoughts. Number one, as a kid, oh, I would have loved to play there. I would have been like, oh, mom, can we please go to Pizza Planet? God, can we please go to Pizza Planet? And as an adult, oh my God, everything's got to be so expensive. Like, think about how much the pizza is overcharged there to keep this place running, to keep the overhead paid for. To think how much they charge for every single one of those crane games, or how much they charge for the rides, or just the arcades, or anything else. Oh my god, this place has got to be a money sinkhole. Which, once again, helps to emphasize just how much money Andy's mom has. Now, Sid is here too. But you'll notice Sid is here by himself, and only does two things before he leaves. 
By contrast, Andy's is, Andy has been brought by his mother and is going here as a part of a whole pizza thing prior to moving out of town. You see the contrast once again. And yes, I am building up a contrast between Andy and Sid. Now, we see the little aliens and the claw, which is all nice for meme purposes, but is probably the most fascinating bit of world building in the entire film for me. No joke. Rewind to those two big points. There's the buddy film thing, which we, we already have between the two main characters. But then there's motivation. What motivates a toy? Being played with. But every toy is going to perceive that and be introduced to that differently. Some are going to be in boxes in stores. Some of them are going to be in bins. Some of them are going to be put together. Some of them are going to be in these giant games to be grabbed by the claw. Ignoring the fact that they're aliens, these could have been anything. These could have been hedgehogs or, or stuffed animals or whatever. But it would always have the exact same culture because this is a logical consequence of being a toy who wants to be played with, who lives in a freaking crane game. This is You could see how they would develop this pseudo-religious perspective based on being chosen and then getting to go off and fulfill your purpose in life, bringing joy and happiness to someone and being played with by them, right? Because they're toys. I love this tidbit. It's just a, it's probably just a throwaway gag, but at the same time, I love the idea that someone somewhere thought about this and put this into the film. <sighs> anyway, sorry. Just I, I, This is probably the biggest gush moment in the script right here. There's a lot to gush about, but in the script, that's brilliant. Anywho, so this then leads to the the most unbelievable moment in the entire film. Sid uses the claw game and succeeds at grabbing something. Not only first does he grab one of the aliens as a chew toy for his dog, but then he manages to grab the Buzz Lightyear, bullcrap, and then yank it up despite resistance, bullcrap, and then takes Woody with it, bullcrap. I'm not even going to talk about how those things are literally mechanically and mathematically designed to steal your money. Let's ignore that. So Sid heads home. You'll notice he recognized the Buzz Lightyear and was really excited about the idea of grabbing one, by the way. Keep that in mind. Uh, let's, just, let's talk about Sid here. Sid is an obvious counterpart to Andy. Um, Andy has nice, new, expensive stuff. Sid has secondhand stuff in almost every case. The lighting in Andy's room is all bright. The lighting in Sid's room is all dark. Uh, Andy has posters and pictures he himself has drawn, and Sid has the, you know, the, the heavy metal kind of stuff going up all over the place. But there's other signs, too. Andy has a loving mother who obviously cares about him a great deal and, again, is obviously in money. Sid's mother is barely seen, and Sid's father is asleep watching TV after drinking several beers. Now, I don't want to sound judgmental, but this and many other things help paint a picture of the kind of home life Sid has. And not bad. Not in the sense that you're probably thinking there's worse than this. But definitely not what I would call supported. This is also probably relevant to why he has to secondhand so much of his stuff. Pay attention to his bed sometime. No sheets. No blanket. And it's just a metal frame. Contrast that to Andy's bed sometime. And you see what I'm talking about here. He also, nevertheless, uses what he has at his disposal as toys. He uses leftovers of other toys and works with them and puts them, uh, takes them apart and puts them together. And he goes out into the shed out back in order to make whatever he can with that because he's working with what he had. Now, I'm probably sympathizing a bit too much here because I used to play with rocks. But you can see how he's not actually bad, per se. He is simply more of the inverse of Andy. He still likes playing with his toys. It's just he does them in a different way. And... Well, there are two crucial distinctions here. Distinction number one, he is a brat. This has nothing to do with the toys. He, they're, they're just toys. It has everything to do with, however, his sister and, well, the, the, the arcade machine, which he actively, openly attacks, despite having no real cause to do so. So he's obviously a bit troubled, okay? Point two, he doesn't maintain his stuff. This may sound like a weird, minor thing to bring up, but in a setting where toys are alive and real, you can see how proper maintenance of what you have is suddenly a huge deal. And frankly, I think proper maintenance is a big deal in real life. There's a reason I have cleaning... I improved this. I literally have Windex right here for my desk. <laughs> and my dust thing is over there. 
to dust stuff and, you know, maintenance. I, I believe very strongly in maintenance. And so clearly it is Andy. And Sid does not at all. Sid just does whatever because who cares? And clearly so does his father. His sister's all right, though. Now, there's also a little bit of a world-building point here, which, if I'm being honest, probably wasn't even intentional. Not every kid's going to be like Andy. Think about all the kids out there, uh, all, all the different types of children from all the different types of lives. Now think about how they're going to react to and play with their toys. What we saw with Andy was someone who maintains his toys, and again, very important to the toys, but also loves them, cherishes them, and just uses them in creative ways. Uh, Sid uses them in creative ways, this is why he's the inverse, not the opposite, and definitely does love and cherish his toys. He enjoys working with them and playing with them. It's just, they don't enjoy the experience quite as much, because he's just not on the same axis. And you can think about how many other different kids of different age ranges might be a thing. And, well, you start to see how toys and their lot in life is not necessarily this big, beautific thing. However, you can also presume why toys would want so much to have a kid that they could be played, that they could play with, that they could bring joy and happiness to. And I'm, I'm cheating a little bit because Toy Story 2 and 3 and 4 all cover the same point in far more detail exactly why it is that toys so much have that motivation to bring happiness and joy to others. Anyways, <clears throat> so, um, this there's a lot of cool stuff here. Um, the tool shed, the cr crappy frame, the bed, uh, or not, that doesn't say bed, what is that? Oh, the sheets, right, right, right. Uh, the buzz light here. Glows in the dark, by the way. Nice touch there. Very nice little minor touch. Don't even comment on it. But uh, then there's a commercial. Now, this is when Buzz Lightyear's character arc finally goes somewhere. Because he had his fish out of water, which was over relatively quickly. But then he had his, you know, I'm, I'm just an opponent to Woody thing. And now his character arc has finally started moving. This is one of the weaker parts of the story. The story. <laughs> the the plot and narrative in the script does have several issues. Again, I don't want to dismiss that. And it once again emphasizes how many issues they had prior to this and why it is such a miracle it got to this state, given all the issues they were having leading up to it. Anyways, he sees the commercial and starts to wig out a little bit. A song plays as he's going through this. This leads to his shock and... Something, unfortunately, a reasonably large number of people probably understand and sympathize with. Having an identity crisis. Now, I know there's the old joke about the 40-year-old who dates an 18-year-old. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean an actual identity crisis. Who are you? What are you? Why are you? In my experience, the older people get, the more likely they have, they have this moment. But a lot of people have this when they're pretty young, too. And unfortunately as of this moment of me saying this, here's hoping that in like 30 years this won't be true. <laughs> Hi, 30 years in the future. But uh, as of this moment, there's still not really the infrastructure or support network to support, you know, kids or teenagers who are going through identity issues who don't really know who, what, or why they are. And this has led to many problems. Now, Buzz is a toy. I don't want to relate. But at the same time, you, you kind of can relate, can't you? Because what he thought he was is not true. You notice his path. First is shock, but then it's denial. No, no, I can totally do this. Then he falls to the ground and literally loses his arm. Reality smacks him in the face. I'll, I'll go ahead and admit something. I actually mentally skipped over a scene in my memories of this film. I had a whole thing written out here, which I then scribbled out because it didn't happen. And then... <laughs> Because because what happens is uh, Buzz has a whole, you know, fake drunk, oh, my life is meaningless, you know, t intentionally trying to add some levity to what otherwise would be a fairly traumatic moment. What's interesting about this is immediately following this is the moment that I actually remembered. So after the, the shock, denial, reality, and drunkenness, we lead to despair. And silence is the sound of despair. And he just, he's just despondent. He doesn't do anything. He just sits there. Barely talks. Barely reacts. 
<sighs> Mr. Potato Head has his second time of being the mob insider. Smack right in the face. And whatever. We also see the new firework come in from Ill Eagles. Ha, ha, ha. And <laughs> like I said, this is when the malaise hits. This is when he just can't deal with anything. I'm just a stupid, insignificant toy. Now that's relatable. How many of you have ever had that moment? How many of you consistently have that moment of feeling, what's the point of me? I don't accomplish any big thing. I don't have some big successful life. I'm not that relevant. Nobody cares about me. The good news is that's wrong. Oh no, hear me out. This is something that has admittedly taken me like a good decade to learn. I'll, like over the last decade, this has been something I've been becoming more and more aware of as my studies of human species continue. I'm going to go back to my, my analogy I use all the time. The Star Destroyer. Now, a Star Destroyer is a massive, huge death machine. It is one of the most powerful ships in fiction, as long as you don't go into nonsense land. It is a battleship, which is a carrier, which is a troop transport, which is a command vessel. It is like unto a fleet in itself, right? Wrong. Because that ship, as big and amazing and as awesome as it is, is useless without the proper support. It needs the fighter screen. It needs the supplies. It needs the scouts. It needs the, the all of the support craft in order to make that ship amazing. Just because you are not some big, important person does not mean that you are not an important person. Woody lays this out flat. He's, Woody finally, finally, finally gets out there and is just honest of it. You, you can't save the planet, but you matter to someone. You do. You may not even know it yet. It may not even be true yet, but it is still true. I guarantee it. So, Woody flat out admits that uh, Buzz is better than him in every way and admits his own fears, his own concerns about the matter that has been on display the whole film, that he is worried that he is simply not good enough. Because he's not, at least not objectively. Thankfully, the reality is not actually an objective thing, so, whew, thank goodness for that. So the two finally start working together. This leads to Woody once again showing his skill with organization, getting the map, you know, getting everything working here. And this leads to Sid being traumatized. It's actually a pretty good scene, I'll give you that. And going on to try and rescue kids from toys in Monsters, Inc. That's not a joke, you can look it up. I'm going to pause for a moment to answer a question. Why is Buzz different from the others? Why doesn't he know he's a toy until it's more or less literally shoved in his face? Here's my... Now, let's go ahead and give the official answer. Oh, the official answer is we didn't think about it. I'm not joking. They've admitted that in interviews. So now that we've got that out of the way, what's your answer? I'll go ahead and give mine because this has always just been kind of in my head. See, Buzz is a more advanced toy than they. More modern parts, more modern circuitry, better voice box. You know, they actually mentioned this. He's a newer toy. So he's designed differently. So the concoction that crafts his sentience and sapience is different. This would hypothetically mean that any Buzz Lightyear toy would go through the same problem, and I'm cheating again, but Toy Story 2. So the idea here being that, uh, also Toy Story 3 if you want to get down to it, the idea here being that that is the problem, and any Buzz Lightyear out there would have to be acclimated to the environment to have, you know, have this same path happen. But there's another world-building point. In this film... And one of the only times that ever happens in the Toy Story series, the toys openly show themselves as being sentient and sapient to a human being. They break the rules, as Woody puts it. Now, they go way out of their way, to the point of self-harm and self-injury, at multiple points in the future and in the past, in order to not do that. Why? Now, you could say the rules, but who set the rules and who enforces the rules? Well, I do have my own theory, and it has to do with breathing. 
Are you concentrating on breathing right now? No, of course you're not. It's just such an automatic response. Now, if you actually put thought and effort, don't actually do this. If you put thought and effort into it, you could stop breathing, at least until you pass out and you'd start breathing again. You probably already see where I'm going with this. The idea being that the toys, to that, the toys, being toys is so central, so integral to their very being, to everything that they are, that it is as vital to them as breathing is to us. And thus, it is such an automatic thing that they don't even think about and barely process to immediately go limp, as Woody does several times in this film. Even Buzz, who has the different programming, still has this same core-centric element to him. He still goes plunk every time someone shows up, because he is still a toy. He still needs to breathe. That is my theory on that point. And, just like breathing, if you have to, you can prevent yourself from breathing. If you're in a, a fire and you need to not inhale the smoke, or there's some acid or something like that, or if you're trying to hold your breath and going underwater, you can do that. And with training, you can do it even better. This then helps to explain how Woody's able to do what he does, and how the other toys are able to operate around Sid. My take on it. This leads to the final boss, Robotnik. Not going to explain that one. Points if you get it. And the important part of the final boss is actually the teamwork. They both have to help each other, and at multiple points, Woody helps Buzz, and then Buddy, Buzz helps Woody, and then back and forth, because the teamwork is what really works here, and is, you know, again, the Buddy concept. Once the two start working together, they start accomplishing stuff. This then leads to the actual final boss, Mr. Potato Head. I'm not kidding. He is the actual final obstacle that they have to overcome. Unless you count, you know, well, I mean, okay, that, that is debatable. He is the final enemy that they have to overcome. Even Spud isn't as much of an obstacle as he is, because Spud is defeated before he is. Oh, my God. Freaking dude. Um, no one notices any of the crap that's going on, by the way, as they're all obviously and overtly zooming through the street in full broad daylight in front of everyone. So let's just ignore that for a moment. And then we have a Christmas scene. This is obviously a Christmas film because there's a scene that happens at Christmas. And I find out they get a puppy. Oh, no. The worst thing he could have possibly gotten was a puppy. He'll be showing up in Toy Story 2. And that's it. We close out. We're done. I will admit, this film was not as good as I remembered, to be completely honest. But that's okay because Zelda 1 is not that good of a game. It isn't. I'm sorry. At least not to me. At least not in my opinion. It wasn't until the format was proven and the interest was there, the backing was there, and the funding was there, that they were able to take that concept and do something with it. Thankfully, the same thing that happened to Zelda happens here to Toy Story. And as a result, Pixar goes... And we'll be discussing where Pixar goes next in just a couple of weeks. I do, as always, hope you have enjoyed. See you next time.